It's one thing to care about big issues like climate change. It's another entirely to find a way to link your passion and your advocacy to what you do every day. This is exactly what's happening in the healthcare space in Australia. Today's Changemaker Chat is with Kim Liu. Kim is a medical doctor and a leading voice with Doctors for the Environment. Kim's combined her passion for care and her experience of growing up in culturally diverse Western Sydney to develop a way of seeing healthy living as something far bigger than something achievable by just one person. She shares her systems thinking with us. She also reflects on the kind of doctoring and kinds of connections that make for powerful change making. Welcome to Changemakers 2024, people, and let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. Changemakers also produces episodes that are feature stories about social change campaigns. In 2024, I am proud to introduce our new sponsor. Changemakers is supported by the Civic Power Fund and the University of College London Policy Lab. Together, they're sharing stories from some of the incredible people building ordinary hope and power in their communities across the United Kingdom. What it means is that across this year, we're going to be bringing you a dedicated stream of UK content, but it'll be intermixed with amazing stories from everywhere else. We're broadcast on Acast as part of the Iconoclast Network. You can find us there as well as on all the usual podcast apps. And you can find out more about Changemakers on our website, where you can also sign up to our email list. It's changemakerspodcast.org. Kim, I want to welcome you to Changemakers, our first episode for 2024. Oh, I'm so grateful to be on the first episode because I've been listening to this podcast for so, so long. Oh, well, that's nice. Well, we're delighted to have you here to be able to feature some of the amazing work that you've been doing on climate change, in particular working in and with the health community and medical professionals. It's going to be a great chat. So, we always ask our guests, Kim, to sort of introduce themselves to the audience by by sharing what kind of change maker are you? So I see myself as educating minds and reaching out to the heart and mobilising people from there. And practically, where do you apply these skills of mobilising people, reaching out to the heart and and and, ch- and changing communities? Where, where like in what domain in particular does your change making uh, take place? I suppose on the granular level is with each patient I see and then at uh, a community level, um, educating my local community. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
And uh, this includes um, the health sector, the community and the policy makers within my own community. Oh, well, that's easy. I mean, that's obviously incredibly straightforward. So um, we'll ha- we'll, we'll, it'll be a simple story, I'm sure you'll tell today. <laughs> but, but, you know, for, so to, to not hold to people in suspense, you know, in particular, also you're a doctor, a general practitioner. And I'm keen for us to be able to understand, for you to share the story, I want you to go all the way back as far as is relevant um, to you know in your life to be able to share with us how you've come to that sort of very granular and community-based approach to change as as a medical professional as a health professional tell us tell us how you came to be the kind of change maker you described so I grew up in a Buddhist household where the core of our life was love and care and so this extends to care for every insect and every plant. So in my family, we never killed an insect. Uh, And my parents grew our own vegetables and fruit at home. And so I was very lucky to be in such a nourished household. I mean, that's quite an extraordinary, I mean, that's that's not common as a set of experience. What a powerful, how do you think that that shaped you as 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 a young person? So it's, in a way, it's how you view life. So what you're motivated by is love and care. And um, so it, in a way it makes life easy because you don't have anything else that is, that's more my core value. And this is how I ended up being a doctor because I wanted to work in the care sector where there was humans or animals. And I suppose my parents made me acutely aware of looking around me and in a way, they didn't have to point out the air pollution that because I grew up in Liverpool. And, and for some of our listeners are, are not based in Australia. Describe Liverpool for people. So Liverpool is an area with um, uh, sort of had was a low socioeconomic area in Sydney, so in the city of Sydney, southwest Sydney, in the in the city of Sydney in New South Wales, and it's the western suburbs. And so, really, people who were poorer lived in that area. And I distinctly remember driving, mum driving me over the Georges River, which is a, a major river in that area, and was covered blue-green algae. You couldn't see the water at all. And air pollution was really bad because a lot of the local industries were there in Liverpool and there was so much traffic. So you had air pollution from the cars and industry. I just remember that distinctly growing up. And and just kind of accepting that when you're a little kid, you understand what's around you. And my home with my parents was a little bit of a sanctuary because it was surrounded by green. And so I kind of understood from an early age about sort of our environmental contaminants. My, not understanding <laughs> oh my God. That, that age. It's quite <laughs> revealing, isn't it? You become an expert at a young age, cheapest creepers. <laughs> And so, um, so it, it really led me to doing medicine. Also, I have to say, my mum is a social worker, and so I really understood at a young age that there were people who are more disadvantaged in our community. And um, it's so when I did medicine, it was really to work in the care sector and see what I could do to improve the health of other people living in our community. Yeah. Wow. Love and care. Taking that idea of love and care and, and thinking of it in terms of what you could do as a health practitioner. Yes. And, and I mean, it sounds, sounds like 
like you had two sets of, I mean, what I'm hearing is both a lived experience of this pollution, right, sort of the destruction of a natural environment, but also in your life, the it, like living with the, the beauty and power of of um, your, your parents tending to the garden, caring about the natural, not killing an insect, how extraordinary. How did those two things, the sort of, that sort of experience of things that, that were ne- were were detrimental, but also the experience of nature as positive. How did that underpin your interest in, I guess, health and and a later the environment? So it really made me understand at a very early age that our health is just not limited to our biological health, not just what we inherit. That there is a system out there that's making us sicker, and that humans are in charge of the system. Yeah, what a radical thought, really. That's really not often what people think of when they think of medicine. They think of, oh, I've got to take my pills and I've got to take responsibility for myself. But what, from a young age, what you saw was that, that what you do is inside of a bigger system. That's right. Yeah, wow. So you go do medicine, ambitiously, brilliant, and you become a, a, a GP. What was that experience like? Where did you go to, to work? Like, where did you decide to work? Yeah. And in a way, I chose general practice because it's the only specialty where you look after the whole person. And I have worked my entire life in Western Sydney. So I worked in Western Sydney hospitals. All the general practices I've worked in are all in Western Sydney. Now I work in Northwestern Sydney. So it's... It's been – now, I've been working for a long, long time because I graduated in 1989 and uh, really seeing my patients actually struggle through really just um, the inequity of society and the re- commercial and the environmental determinants of health. Did any moment stick in your mind? Like was there a, is there a moment of, of interconnecting with a patient where that really was brought home to you? It was just in a way it was sort of – it was not one moment. It was a series of um, really in a way house calls. Uh, so, I, so you actually see because having a safe home is a determinant for health. And I've been in so many hot homes on hot days when you get out of a car and there's a hot road and you go into a house that's not thermally efficient and it's hot inside. And we know that heat impacts people with chronic disease. And when people are living in energy poverty, it's really heartbreaking because it's a systems problem that's making my patients sicker. And in a way, when I kind of gradually dawned on me that I needed to do more, it is because that we, I know that inequities are always going to be there and that's a system, our system of gov- governance, our government and um, really it's corporations and, and the destruction of nature. All of these things are systems that impact on health and the, it's so important that doctors speak up because so many people are not cognizant of the systems problem that impact health. Yeah. And so look, you obviously grew up in a really powerful and supportive family environment and you went off and you had these experiences seeing what was going on for your patients, realizing that there was something bigger that needed to be done. But I also imagine like you are working pretty long hours as doctors do. You've got a family life as well. How did you... (laughs) 
how did you put all those things together? How did you find the space to be able to do something about it? And where did that come from for you? Now, I started advocacy in 2015 and my kids were a little bit older. And I realized at that point, whatever, however much you care, you can't do it alone. And so I did join Citizens Climate Lobby to start off with. That group taught me how to professionally lobby politicians and corporations. And it was invaluable. And then I joined Doctors for the Environment. So, so I mean, I did a lot of advocacy locally with the local papers talking about heat waves and just my garden, chooks and vegetables. But the powerful advocacy is with when I was with Doctors for the Environment and there's also uh, Healthy Futures and Climate and Health Alliance because the health sector is in a powerful place because doctors are still trusted. And so doctors are still listened to. And so it's incumbent on us. And it's an ethical obligation for doctors to advocate regarding um, the system's impacts of health on our patients. Yes. I mean, look, another phrase comes to mind, with great power comes great responsibility. If doctors are going to have this role in our community, you know, they, they have a responsibility to, to help, you know, make the make society better for the community that it serves, you know? Absolutely. Because you can only do so much when you actually try to guide people through their lives. Um, you can optimise their health in terms of what they eat, how, how they live and what medications they have. But the spaces they live in are so, so important. And so, and people, people live lives that are so, that day-to-day Really, some people live such impoverished lives that it's really, they can't have the space even if they understand the problem to advocate. And so that's why it's important for doctors who look after all our patients to advocate for them. And it's like a, what you described before, it's like a team sport, right? Like that, that no one can do these things on their own, that we need to, 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 you know, it feels overwhelming when you look at it on your own, but when you work with others, things start to shift. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, uh, it is a team sport and it's so important to get working together. We nourish each other and support each other because we actually uh, care for each other as a group within our doctor groups as well. And so it's really important because it's the long game. And if we don't support, nourish and care for each other as a group, we can't continue to advocate. And it's so important that people step up, step down, people take breaks and, and that our group is also not exclusive, um, that we work with other people in other groups as well because cohe- we need to have a cohesive framework to work with other groups who advocate within this area to actually achieve anything meaningful. Yeah, yeah, which is, which is um, you know, we're going to get into it in a sec. It's all sort of countercultural to some thinking inside the medical space where it's a very hierarchical institution, this idea of collaboration across different kinds of knowledge, different types of people is uh, is. I mean, for me, I think it sounds really welcome to sort of know that we've all got to work together, that we all have partial knowledge and that together we can build something uh, better than uh, some of our parts. Absolutely. And um, we've reached a point now because at the beginning of advocacy, environmental groups have been going on for years. But really within the environmental groups, they didn't really understand the health impacts of climate change. It was kind of almost a new thing when I used to spend my time speaking to a lot of 
groups advocating for biodiversity and forests and even for broader things regarding fossil fuels, they really didn't understand the health impacts and it makes it more powerful for their advocacy because it's because climate change is such a big nebulous topic. And sometimes when you ab- advocate, um, really the community doesn't quite understand it. And that's why it's really incumbent on the health sector to educate everyone else in the climate movement. Well, this was going to be my question. Like if we move to sort of the how you make change, I was, I, I was, and maybe you've already just answered it, but you know, is there more to say about why it's important? in particular for doctors to be organised on questions of climate and the environment? Yeah, it is important for doctors to be mobilised and this is why part of Doctors for the Environment's advocacy is within doctors' groups. So we have a memorandum with the Australian Medical Association regarding climate change and health. And AMA has been a very long-standing large group of doctors and um, this is really in a very important step. So, and we have to have a cohesive voice within the medical community so that, um, so when we advocate to, to policymakers and to, to uh, corporations, in, this is including the financial corporations, that we have a cohesive voice with clear messaging because clear messaging is so, so important. I want you to tell the story of Doctors for the Environment because actually um, it's been around for a long time and and I'll bet that lots of our listeners don't know the story. Can you tell us how this group that you've become very – became very active in? Where did it first begin? So Doctors for Environment started around a kitchen table with three doctors, Dr Blaschke, Dr Shearman and Dr McMichael, who understood at that point in time that having – really optimal human health requires the environment to be healthy as well because we need clean air, water, soils, temperatures and healthy ecosystems for us to be healthy people. And we know that if nature perishes, so will human health. And um, and they understood that the biodiversity crisis is also a human health crisis. And so they so, – yeah, so I was going to say so – Kitchen table, where, how did it then emerge? Organically. <laughs> like every organisation that starts around a kitchen table. Yeah, <laughs> slowly, so yeah. <laughs> it's, so we, na- we are now, we, it's grown to, from the point of three doctors to now about 3,000 doctors throughout Australia. So we actually have a very organised group now. So we work in areas of education, education. so in inserting climate change into the medical curriculum so that medical students understand the impacts in every system, that climate change impacts on every single organ of the human body. Um, and so, and we have education within, we run education meetings and with points for other doctors. We also promote healthcare sustainability because um, emissions, healthcare emissions in Australia is 7% of, of the total emissions. So we are responsible in the healthcare sector for 7% of emissions. Well, I did not know that. Gosh, I guess every sector has a, uh, makes a contribution and yeah, wow. Yeah, so we are advocating within within the health sector. Like in New South Wales, health has a health sustainability unit now, as well as Victoria, so that we can look at sect at to practice high value care, 
because practicing high value care also um, reduces our emissions. So looking at where we procure products is really, really important for the carbon footprint, where we get food from for the hospitals. So where we get instruments from, where we get medications from, that uh, how the hospital's energy is sourced, um, looking at waste. So the sustainability units look at that and advocate within the healthcare sector. We also write submissions, government submissions for every single renewable um, project, for any fossil fuel project, for any any projects that uh, impact on health directly and indirectly. And we also do campaigning and educating and on a larger level. And our fifth thing we do is collaborating with other organisations. So I've, I'm going to ask you a few questions about, you know, your role as a doctor change maker because I think that's very interesting. One of the things I wanted to open up is the place of expertise in change making because we know that in climate change, climate scientists have had a lot of trouble being able to use expertise as a way of convincing people because people have basically gone, we don't believe experts, right? You know, there's a distrust of experts. And your, you know, doctors are experts um, and they have lots of factual knowledge, but, you know, we also have, I guess, you know, the, the science on climate has taught us there are limits to facts when it comes to influencing the behaviour of others. What have you learned, you know, as an expert, but also um, as someone who's trying to change, you know, the practice of the medical profession? What have you learned about what it takes to have influence as an expert? I think doctors are in a place that are different from scientists who purely deal with um, non-clinical work because we engage with people. So, and our skills are people skills, especially with general practice. And so in terms of messaging, it's kind of what I do anyway. And clinical skills and advocacy skills integrate with doctors because we can actually explain things in really simple terms um, because different people have different levels of health and science literacy. And in a way, we have the skills to translate the science to different levels of literacy. You know, but can I be the devil's advocate and say not every doctor is as is as you describe, I would say. Some are very relational and some are not. Like in what ways are you bringing certain skills or emphasising certain skills within the, you know, medical profession? Yes, not doctors all understand the system's problem. And I've discovered this uh, because they live in silos. So doctors are so subspecialised that you can have a doctor just for your fingers and your hands and, and one for your ankles and your feet. That's how subspecialised. So I think the problem with the way the health sector works is everything's fragmented in, in terms of the people who subspecialise in special skills, that they don't see the whole person, let alone the whole system. I think that's a huge issue. So And, that, and that's why doctors also need to be educated regarding and a holistic approach to health because unless you see health as a whole, as a as a whole person you don't actually understand the system's impact of uh, climate change and biodiversity loss and so there's a lot of general practitioners in the climate movement because we understand the whether the coal face of climate change and I hope I've answered your question <laughs> oh no I think I think you have and I think what is interesting in what you're saying is that there are certain conditions under which um, people are able to really 
build the kind of, I don't know, mindset to be able to both deal with the challenge of climate and also connect and um, connect with people, right? And the more that we see people as whole people, um, the, the easier that connection is. And the more that we fragment and isolate and, and narrow, the more difficult it is to see both the systems and the person and, you know, to, to build those relationships, I guess. That's what I'm hearing. That's right. Oh, that's – and, I mean, that's why we have planetary health now because to look at the systems – because if you work in planetary health, you have to look at the systems in place – they are still a small group, and that's why you know, you know it's so it's really still working with our own health sector that we need to explain the system's problems. And I have gone around individually. Sometimes it is takes a single conversation with multiple people. I spent the last ten years doing single conversations with doctors to actually for doctors to understand the the crisis that we're in. And there's a lot being done at the moment because more doctors understand. Like to me I'm the other thing that's interesting in your story Kim is that there's a real geography to it, right? You grew up in western Sydney in a particular part of Sydney and saw a particular way in which the natural environment was um, being negatively affected by pollution and how that was impacting people. And then similarly as a GP you place yourself in local communities to to do your care and then to build out this um, interesting systems practice. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, about place and geography and how that's important to you as someone who's making change in this way. Climate change really impacts geographical areas differently. And unfortunately, in most areas, the poorest people with with the greatest poverty and unemployment are the great have the greatest impact of climate change, and so if you look at um, even heat waves and tree can- canopy cover, um, the the richer areas within Sydney have gr- the greatest canopy cover, and then we have the all these urban heat islands in Western Sydney. So we're geographically based to be far away from water, and then assist the. The built environment is just promoting heat waves and micro. So areas that are built that just absorb the heat at night and just suck it in so it's hot for people living in houses that are just ovens. So geographically, my patients live in an area that where they're living at the highest degree of harm from climate change. It's only not just the heat waves, it's the floods. And so we've had three lots of floods where my patients have been evacuated as well. So I'm also going to house calls where there's mould all over the walls. Yeah. No release from this. But, you know, but I guess what I'm wondering is, okay, but you are in those places too, right? You're working in those places too in a sustained way. Like how important is being in local relationship with communities over a long time how important is that for making change for you? It is critically important because people see you working within the community and see you care about the community. So it is so it is people within community that community trusts. You can't helicopter into another community and tell them what to do. And that's why even with um, sort of building more resilient communities, need local leaders within the community to actually work with the community to actually be more resilient. So, so 
that's why we encourage doctors to work within their own community. Yeah, no, it makes sense, right? It makes sense. I mean, it's how trust is built, right? Like what I'm hearing is like um, you you might, you can, it's easy to distrust someone you don't know. It's it's much easier to build a relation, even if the person feels and looks different to you, should be able to to build a sense of um, we're all in it together when you're working together in the same place. And so, I mean, within my own community, we've actually have more people who understand the problem and and I can see this and we've had to um, just with even uh, our local papers having certain articles in it and engaging engaging with me to actually speak to our communities. Well, I, would you know what I'm interested in, Kim, is like I reckon there is still a little bit of um, an assumption that the main group of people who care about climate change are, are educated white middle class women who live close to the coast, right? You know, and look, and and we love those people. You know, arguably, you could say I'm a person like that, right? You know, beautiful people. But the truth is, not nearly diverse enough. Not nearly, um, not not nearly. Uh, enough, sizable enough to actually bring the whole country with us, right? Like the truth is, is that if we're going to move on this, we need Western Sydney, we need people with different communities. Tell us what, tell us how we're wrong to just think it's just white people. Like what's your experience in the work that you've been doing? Like what, how is it working? So I work with, with a couple of different groups, um, with Sydney Alliance and, and um, with communities, different cultural groups within our community. People care. And it's really uh, wrong to have the assumption that people who are culturally different don't understand. It's just that we haven't actually reached out and connected with them and to be more inclusive. So I'm with um, Australian Asians for um, for Climate Solutions and the, with the Multicultural Leadership Group and I hold regular community meetings in my own home with different multicultural groups because it's we need to actually reach out to different communities and what we're doing now is reaching out to different cultural leaders to actually mobilize the communities so that even just to there are communities that are mobilizing for renewable energy um, and so that's part of the Sydney Alliance and so I because I work with multicultural communities as well and it is incumbent of all of us to be more inclusive to commu- other communities because people understand, people have lived it. People who live in poverty are also people who have diverse backgrounds and they understand heat. Then they can see that they're – and, you know, it's – and, you know, um, my friend Emma Bacon who runs Sweltering Cities has reached out to a lot of communities living in energy poverty to actually tell their stories so there are so many groups now reaching out to different communities to actually hear their voice. So it is such important work and um, community work is the most important work and uh, and that's normally what I do every day and spend my life doing. <laughs> I know, it's so spectacular, the, 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 the doctor of change. Um, and I guess what, it's ha- what I see in what your story is saying is that there's – there's the negative effects from pollution or now with climate change, heat and floods, but actually it's not just the fact that there's horrible things happening. There's 
people people can't necessarily see it, but there's people like you, people like Emma, people like the Alliance, others, organisations, connecting with people, connecting with community leaders, talking about this stuff. It's the combination of, yes, there is a crisis, we can feel it, but actually it's also this sense of relationships and collaboration that's making a difference. Yeah, it's kind of like the, I was thinking because of my gardening, there's a mycelial network under the soil that connects every single tree and shrub. And so I see this as like the mycelial network. So, and in a way that's what I do is I, I connect people so that there is a very large web of um, people who care, who know each other and are reaching out. And like it is really heartening to know that there are so many people working in every minutiae of every corner of this space who understand the problem and are working towards getting a more cohesive community. Yeah, I know. It's, it actually sort of reassures, you know, sometimes you can watch the news and think, oh, my God, it's all so terrible. But actually it's this kind of work that can fill your heart and, and reassure you that, you know, no, there are some things we can't control, but when we can control the relationships we build, you know, that, that things th- those things are going well. Yes, and it heartens me because, like, initially when I understood the problem, I was actually pretty depressed about it. But I don't think I've been super depressed about it since um, working in the space uh, because just working in the space means that I know that, you know, I'm working as part of the solution and, um, and like, it's amazing the friends I have made since doing advocacy. So many friends um, that it's just amazing. It's the joy of the advocacy work as well. Because you can't yeah. do advocacy without sort of like social interaction and joy. And when it, you're just sort of, it's not just about sort of some sort of, um, tr- sort of we're going to change the world, here's a perfect strategy, we're just going to go do it, this sort of public advocacy, but this sort of transformation in our private lives, the new relationships and connections, the joyfulness that you're describing, that's also there, that it's both those things that make this kind of work work. Yes, that's right, because you can't do the work without joy. Oh, surely. Or, or you give up, surely, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. And so uh, and, and I encourage every group that I am a part of now, and I've lost count in a way sometimes, um, that we need to have the, like sort of like to go out and have dinner, to have, to have a shared experience, and people underestimate the need for that. It is a need. Yeah. I mean, as human as social creatures, we need to have relationships that are positive with other people. Yeah. And so it is also building bridges. So like it's – I have friends who are really polar opposite me in in their political view because sometimes you don't find out people's political view amongst in your friendship group until you start advocacy. Mm. But I maintain those friendships because it's the we can't do this 
without more of us within advocacy. Yeah, and and we're not always going to. We don't want everyone to be the same. We want to have difference, and it's and that's it's, right. It's so imp- I think it's really important. Like difference is the key v- sort of practice of democracy. That's how democracy works. We're allowed to have different opinions and. Being able to hold difference amongst our friends, our colleagues, our, 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 our relationships is, is so important. It's so important for a functioning democracy and just for a good life. That's right. And, um, and I think that it's so important that this message is out there because there is a certain section of the community who understand the problem and are really not functioning well. And that is a sign- that is a small but significant group of people, and um, it's incumbent on all of us to say that you know something's not done until it's done, and that we always like it's active hope is that we if we work on this problem and we actually visualise that we can actually win s- small battles for the the big for the big prize. I don't even think of it as battles, and it's sort of maybe just to edge us closer to that tipping point. Well, every every big change is made up of a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of smaller steps. That's right. And that's and that's our job, right? Those smaller steps. Yep, it is our job. And I mean, that's how I work <laughs> as a general practitioner as well. Because you do work with people with their lifestyle and it is small steps. Isn't that interesting? It's this, a similar kind of mindset. It is. Because I do lifestyle modification. And it is small step. I do little contracts with my patients about each small step. And so... <laughs> yeah, right. I do, it's very resonant. Yeah. So, look, Kim, this has been an absolute delight to talk with you about medicine and health and being a doctor and changing, um, changing our communities and hopefully at some point leading to change in the world. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your your wisdom about all this practice with us today. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure, Amanda. And I'm so thrilled to be actually be on this podcast. Woohoo! Excellent. See, <laughs> everything's possible. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all of our episodes. This is Series 8. Wow. There you go. So there's plenty to be inspired by in our back catalogue. Changemakers audio producer is Jules Walker, and we are broadcast on Acast and part of the Iconoclast Network. Changemakers is supported by the Civic Power Fund and the University of College London Policy Lab. Together, they're sharing stories of some of the incredible people building ordinary hope and power in their communities across the United Kingdom. Like us on Facebook, Instagram and threads at Changemakers Podcast. We also sometimes appear on X slash Twitter at Changemakers99. I occasionally am there on X slash Twitter (laughs) at Amanda Tats. And you can check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all of our stories. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.